All right, 2 Samuel is where we're at, if you'll open your Bibles there. 2 Samuel, we're continuing in our study through uh, the books of First and 2 Samuel. <clears throat> we took a couple of week break in between the two books, uh, and, uh, and now we're picking it up, 2 Samuel chapter 1. It's really uh, one book uh, in the original manuscripts, and somewhere along the way it got broken into two books, but this is just a continuation of the story that we've been going through, and uh, i got a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to jump right into it. 2 Samuel chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, we read, Now it came to pass, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag, on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And so it was, when he came to David, that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. He's coming with clothes torn, dust on his head. That's a universal sign, symbol of mourning. And so this is not a good sign. It's a bad indicator. Verse 3, And David said to him, Where have you come from? And so he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And then David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. He says there in in, uh, verse 4 that the people have fallen. And one of the key words in this chapter is that precise word, the word fallen. We see it here in verse 4. We'll see it again in verses 10, 12, 19, and verse 27 of this same chapter. And, and, And the Hebrew word is nephael. And what it means is to fall, to be cast down, or to fail. To fall, to be cast down, or to fail. Several years ago, I was at a pastor's conference, and uh, one of the pastors was sharing a testimony about an experience that he'd had. And he was there at the church, and the police showed up looking for him. Uh, Not a good day when the cops come looking for you. They're looking for him, and and, uh, so he's hastily brought out, and hey, what's going on? And they said, listen... We have a barricaded suspect. It's a hostage situation. He's taken several hostages. The SWAT team is on scene. He's asked for you. And so the pastor jumps in their car. They race him down there. They take him in. And uh, he's ushered in uh, under heavy security. He's brought to a point between two buildings in an alleyway. And uh, they have him there uh, with, you know, the megaphone to talk to the guy. And right there in close proximity to him is a guy in full SWAT apparel, all tactical gear. And he's got a military uh, rifle. Uh, and uh, he's, he's their sniper. And he's got it trained on this guy. And uh, of course all the other people are strategically placed. And so uh, he gets on the, the microphone. He says, uh, hey. And he calls the guy by name. He says, hey, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's me. It's, it's your pastor. And uh, the guy says, is that really you? And he says, yeah, it's really me. And then he just let out this sort of maniacal laugh. And he said, I just wanted to hear your voice one more time. And at that, he drew his weapon and he charged And at that moment, the sniper who was nearby him pulled the trigger. And because it was a military round, one pull of the trigger, three rounds into this guy's chest. And he crumpled down dead right in front of this guy. And the explosion of that gunshot just, you know, making his ears ring. Just that deafening sound and and just the devastation of the whole experience. Well, he... Is, is trying to make sense of all this. He's finding out who this guy was. He's a pastor of a rather large congregation. And so, you know, he, he's just wanting to know what is this guy's story and all. And, and just coming to terms with a guy who was obviously profoundly troubled and uh, chose to end his life, suicide by cop. And so the next day, the pastors called, you know, the, they call the church, the business of all the people who had been taken hostage, they, they're looking for, they want to talk to somebody that can help them to process through all this, to, to make sense uh, of what's going on. And so the pastor there, he's on his drive down back to the place he was the day before where he had seen a man lose his life right before his very eyes, and he praying and saying, Lord, what can I say to these people? And so the Lord brought him to, to just mentally, to a, a parable that Jesus had shared. It's a parable we talked about a couple of weeks ago. 
about a man who built his house on, on a foundation. And there were two men. One built his house upon the sand. The other built his house upon the rock. And so he shared that, that, that story with them that Jesus told. And, and as he was sharing the story with him, he, he, he got to the point of that parable in Matthew chapter 7, and he said to them, and the rains descended, and the floods came, and this is Jesus' words there in Matthew seven twenty seven. he says, the, the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. He talked to them about these foundations, and he said, that sound that you heard yesterday was the sound of a man falling. And this is the sound that reverberates here in 2 Samuel chapter 1. It's the sound of a man and a nation falling. And it's a tragic sound, and it's a heartbreaking sound. It just echoes and permeates there as this guy comes and tells David, David longing to know, look, you know, your clothes are ripped, you got dust on your head, I'm, I'm a little freaking out here because I know it means bad news, and now you tell me you come from the, the camp of Israel. And he says in verse 4, the people have fled from battle, many are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan and his sons are dead also. And when Saul began his career you were with us as we went through 1 Samuel, it didn't start off that way. It started off very good for Saul. The, the, the nation crying out for a king, they're in a time and a season nationally when everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes and they reasoned that they needed a king and so they you know, requested a king, God granted their request and uh, selected Saul. Saul was a man who stood head and shoulders above everybody else. And Saul, in the beginning of his reign as the king over Israel, anointed by God, served God, and he was faithful to God, and God did wonderful works through him and, and brought tremendous victory through his faithfulness as he stood head and shoulders above everyone else. But years of disobedience and compromise and envy and jealousy have taken their toll in Saul's life, and now it's a dark day for Israel. Now because of Saul's failed leadership, now because Saul has lapsed into that season of disobedience, God removing his spirit from him, and so Saul and several of his sons have fallen to the Philistines. And, and God had warned Saul about that. Saul wanting to go, and, and God's, God's like, I'm not talking to you anymore. And so because God won't talk to Saul anymore, <clears throat> we see him the day before he dies, he goes and he finds a, a, a witch to be able to speak to the dead. He says, I, I want to talk to the prophet Samuel, the man who anointed him, the man who was his advisor for so many years, whose counsel he'd rejected. But Saul, grasping at straws, any port in a storm, I need to talk to somebody. And that's the thing for us that, you know, as children of God, if you're here today and you're a believer and a follower of the Lord, and, and there are those times when we take, a, a, when we take a, a, a right turn, man, and we're not walking in obedience with God. And there are those seasons sometimes where God goes silent in our lives. And, and it, it's kind of like, you know, your teenager, he cops an attitude with you, like, you know, I don't need you. And then you're like, okay, well, guess what? Uh, you can't use my car. You can't, I'm not, you know, you don't, have, you don't have any, you know, money for what you need to do. And, and, and all of a sudden they realize, oh, wait a minute. I need mom and dad, you know, and, 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 and we can get that place too, you know. I, I heard a story once, this teenager goes to his dad, he's like, hey, uh, hey dad, can, uh, can, can, can you give me a car? And his dad's like, look, I've been talking to you, son, about just the, the way you've been living and all, and he's like, you know, you need to, to, to get a job and you need to get a haircut. And he's, he's like, hey, you know what, Dad? Jesus had long hair, and, and, and it was good enough for him. And his dad goes, well, yeah, and he walked everywhere he went, too. You know? I said, you know, we could be in the place where, you know, we go in a relationship, we're in a relationship with God, but all of a sudden we just wander, we go off track, and then all of a sudden God doesn't, we go through a season where God's like silent, and then all of a sudden you realize, 
whoa, I, I need you. Now, now the ideal is, is that we humble ourselves and we repent when we're in that season of disobedience and God, you know, disciplines us and so on. It's to bring us back to him. Well, Saul didn't come back to him. Saul wouldn't come back to him. He turns to a witch. He's like, okay, God won't talk to me. Then I'll turn to, uh, to a witch and have a seance and I'm looking to talk to Samuel, somebody, anybody who will talk to me and tell me, you know, something. Samuel shows up at this seance and, and there, it's debated, is this Samuel, was it an evil spirit that, you know, and, uh, and we talked about that as we went through 1 Samuel, but basically Samuel shows up, he's like, all right, look, God, speaking to, to Saul, saying, I got nothing left to say to you, the only thing I got to say to you is tomorrow you're going to die, you're going to go into battle, you and your sons, you're going to die. God warned him, he said, this is, this is, this is where it's at, this is, this is a logical end, and I'm of the belief that even at that point, that Saul could have repented. That he, that he could have turned from his sin. But now we're in a dark season, dark day for Israel. Saul didn't repent and it, and it cost his life. He's fallen, his sons have fallen to the Philistines. Israel now, they've lost, their ba- they've lost the battle, they've lost their king, they're in full retreat. Which is, really, I could go off on a whole other tangent there, just about you moms and dads, that you, you, your, your sin choices can devastate your family and cause, you know, d- defeat for your entire family. This is where they're at. And now what's happened is the Philistines, they've got the northern area of Galilee, and now they've made these advances into the territory, and now they've gained the southern area there around what is today the Gaza Strip. They're, they're invading the land. The enemy is, is in full you know, attack, just like he attacks us. Now, in sharp contrast to Saul's kingdom and the, 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 the fallen aspect of Saul's kingdom, what we see now is the rise of David's kingdom. This is where David rises up, and this is now David taking, you know, this position that God had called him to so many years before. And, you know, God called David to be the, the king, Samuel showed up and anointed him to replace Saul. But if you'll recall, what happened is God prescribed 10 years of trial for David. You know, how's that for a fine how do you do? God calls you to be the king and then all of a sudden it's like the gates of hell just opened up and you're under full oppressive attack. And, and so this is what's going on with, with David, that, that God's called him to be king, but he's allowed this incredible attack to come upon him. What's happening? Well, God's, he's, he's refining David. He's doing a work to prepare him to be king. It's not like God tells David, okay, you're going to be king, you know, step in. He's like, no, you need a little seasoning. You need a little preparation. And so God, having put David through this incredible trial, and sometimes the greater thing that God wants to do, the greater the thing, the greater the trial. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you're in a season of trial today. Sometimes it's that, that greater organ, and we don't always appreciate it in the moment, do we? We don't always typically appreciate the trials when, when we go through them. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, this, this spoke to me incredibly uh, this week. Uh, it says this, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Who can say I'm, a- amen to that? You know, you're in a season of discipline. You don't, you're, you're not like yippee, you know, even though James says we're to consider trials pure joy, you know, nut job, right? You're like, what? That's the word of God. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And that's the key thing. That God is using that. And, and the greater the work, the greater the discipline. When we were building our first church, we f- spent just a, a, a ridiculous amount of time working on the site preparation. And if you're in construction, you know it's like it takes months and months and months and months. And, 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 you know, you go down to the building site and it's still dirt, you know. And you go back the next week and it's still dirt. And you go back the next month and it's still dirt. And you're like, what is going on here, man? Why is this taking so long? But what's happening is, and the greater the building, the more this is, is that you're, put, you're, you're preparing the site to accommodate the building. And so there's a lot of work that happens underground. There's a ton of work that happens out of, uh, underground. 
And you're writing large checks to these different contractors and you go down and you're like, it's still dirt. And I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars at this point and there it is, still dirt. Why? Well, because the foundation is being built. And this is what's happening in David's life. It seems forever like nothing's happening. And then what happens there is that once the foundation is done, building goes up like that. You go down two weeks later, you're like, oh, there it is. There's the building I've been writing all these checks for. Why? Because the, the ocean of, of, of preparation is taking place underground. See, Saul wasn't going down without a fight. And, and you know, Romans 8.28 tells us that in all things, God works together for good to those that love God and are the called according to his purpose. So what happens here is that Saul's rebelled against the Lord. The Lord's taken his spirit from Saul. And now God is going to use Saul's rebellion to, to, to groom David and prepare him to, to, to be king. And so this is what's happening. Saul is, is making, he's a formidable foe for David. And he's making his life miserable. You know, he, he took away his home. He took away his wife. He took away his job. He's made several attempts on his life. Now, David, in responding to this for the first several years, I mean, went through this for 10 years. For the first several years, again, you've been with us, you know, he responded rather well. He, he endured this trial. He honored God through it and, and all. But as the trial wore on, David began to lose faith. And David began to become doubtful and weary. And so what happened was that David made the mistake that a lot of us make. He began to walk by sight. See, the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those that come to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. But so often what happens is because we're physical beings and we live in a physical world, then what I do is I want to make my decisions based on what I can see based on what I can figure out. And so everything in me wants to walk by sight. As a matter of fact, I'll orchestrate my life in such a way that, that you know, I don't have to walk by faith. I want to be able to, to have everything all nailed down so that I can walk by sight because that's where my flesh is the most comfortable. And God's like, I, I'm not really interested in your comfort. I'm not interested in your happiness. I'm interested in your holiness, you know? And so God, he, he, he just, doink, he does stuff in our life. And we're like, all of a sudden, whoa, wait, wait a minute. My, you know, my world is rocked here. And God's like, yeah, you, you got you to trust in me. And so David, he gets to the place where he begins to stress out. He begins to doubt. He begins to fear, starts walking by sight. And David gets into the place then where, man, now he's, he's, he's doing things that Saul used to do. In disobeying God, and now all of a sudden he thinks, well, you know what? The only best place for me, because Saul is so relentless, is I'll, I'll go to the Philistines. Now, when David was, you know, young and in the Lord and under the, the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, what happens is, well, he goes, and, and being anointed by the Spirit of God, he's the guy that takes actions to fight against Goliath when he's opposing God and his people. Well, who's Goliath? He's a Philistine. And so, you know, here he is in this place, and, and, and he's, he's like, wow, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to go, and now I'm going to join forces with the Philistines. Picture of us when we begin to walk by sight, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, we've aligned ourselves with those that are opposing God. The Bible says, be not deceived, bad company corrupts good character. And sure enough, with David, not only does he go to the land of the Philistines and begin hanging out with them, but he makes his home there in Ziklag. He asks them, hey, can I, can I live here? Can you give me an area here in enemy territory? And uh, yeah, here, and they give him Ziklag, and this is where he makes his home. It gets to the point where David almost goes with the Philistines to battle against the Israelites. And he's upset when the, when the leaders of the Philistines go, oh, wait a minute, aren't you David? Aren't you the guy that all the chicks were singing about? You know, Saul has slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands. And as I recall, wasn't that in a battle against us? Weren't you guy, the guy that killed Goliath? Weren't you the guy that, that, that took all those several smooth stones and sunk one in Goliath's head and the other ones probably for his brothers, you know? You're like, I ain't done here. You're that guy. You know, you're not going with us. And David was so much in the place where he'd gone into enemy territory where he was just completely ready to join them 
in battle. But thankfully, God intervened in David's life. And he causes the Philistines to reject David. And he causes, while David is away, trying to join forces and fight against the Israelites and ultimately being rejected, by the time he comes back to Ziklag, his home away from home, there in enemy territory, God allowed the enemy to invade it and he allowed it to be burnt to the ground and all of their possessions to be taken. But see, God is a good God, and he does that because he wants to bring David to a place of repentance. He wants David to humble himself. And this is exactly what happens in David's life. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The Bible says that if we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, that he will lift us up. And that's what David did. Humbled himself, went to, to the Lord, fell on his face, and said, Lord, you know, what should I do? I'm, you know, I, I've sinned. And now I, I, now I see the results of everything that I've tried to build and the, the kingdom that I've tried to build for myself. And it's all burned up and God, it's just all, it's all a big waste. And so God brings him back to the place to where when he humbles himself, he receives God's grace. He receives his mercy. And you know, now David says, what should I do? Should I go after the Amalekites who, who attacked this you know, and did all this? And God's like, yeah, go after them. He's like, am I going to get victory? He goes, you're going to get victory? You're going to recover all. And sure enough, he does because he fights now by faith the Lord's battles. So David, having done that, we read when he comes back now, he's been victorious. They've recovered everything. <clears throat> Here they are. They go back to, to Ziklag, and, and he's not going to stay there. But he's gone back there, and he's a man now humble and seeking God. And so here he is in this place. Now, he knows that the, the, the Philistines are getting ready to go fight the Israelites. And so, you know, he, he can't go online and, and figure out, like, what's going on here. You know, he can't, he can't turn on CNN and say, hey, how's the battle going? So he's got to wait. So several days go by, <clears throat> and uh, this guy shows up. Tor clothes are torn, dust on his head. Bad news, bad news, man, here it comes. And so David said to the young man who told him, verse 5, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? This is a natural response, right? You get bad news. Hey, here's what happened. You're like, wait a minute. That can't be true. How do you know that? Verse 6, and then the young man who told him, said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. And now when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And so I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me again, please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me. But my life still remains in me. This is debatable whether or not this actually happened or if this guy's lying. Um, because we have read previous to this that Saul was hit by the archers. He was wounded severely. He knew that you know, if he fell into the hands of the, the Philistines that they were going to be brutal to him and torture him. And so you know, he begged his armor bearer to kill him. And his armor bearer is like, you're the king. I'm not touching you, man. I will not do that. I'm not going to lay hand against the Lord's anointed. Life and death are in the hands of the Lord. They're not in my hand, and I can't take your life from you. He just said, no, he wouldn't do it. And so we read that Saul fell on his own spear, and his armor bearer saw that he was dead, and he fell on his own spear and died there with him. And that's where the story ends in 1 Samuel. But now we read, apparently he didn't die. Now, whether or not he, he actually did take his own life, and this guy is, is lying about what he did, or whether or not this guy actually took his life, we don't know, and it's, and it's debated by, by biblical scholars. People take different positions. If, in fact, this Amalekite did kill him, it is very instructive for us. Why? Because God had, in, had told Saul, this was the thing that got Saul disqualified as the king. God had told him, hey, look, you need to, you need to kill the Amalekites. You need to destroy them. We're going to talk about more of that in just a minute, but, but, but Saul disobeyed. Because Saul disobeyed, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, and, and God was like, you're out, you're done, you're all over. And now here it is, this, this, this man whom he was supposed to destroy now destroys him. He said to him, please stand over me and kill me, for my anguish has come upon me. My life still remains in me. Verse 10, so I stood over him and I killed him, 
because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. And therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all of the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Now let me ask you a question right here. I want you to put yourself in David's shoes, all right? Here's a guy who's, who's taken everything from you. Right? This guy, I mean, you just get in your mind's eye your worst enemy that you've ever had. Okay? This guy is, makes that guy pale in comparison. Because here, this enemy, what's he done? <coughs> He's taken David's wife from him, who was his daughter, Saul's daughter. He, he, he took his wife from David, and he married her off to some other guy. Right? Thanks, father-in-law. Thanks, dad. He took David's home from him. He took David's job from him. And he made his life a living hell for 10 years. 10 years, he, he forces David to run for his life, to live in caves, throwing spears at him, sending assassins to go kill him. 10 years. I mean, somebody gossips about you, and, you know, for five minutes, and you're ready to burn their house down, you know? 10 years. So you put yourself in, in, in his shoes. I mean, would you... Tear your clothes and mourn for that? No, you would. You'd be like, party time, man. Let's throw a party. Party at my house, man. You know, that's what he gets. I mean, that's the way I would feel in my flesh, right? And, and we have to understand, because this is central to this entire chapter, that's not how David responds. That's not how David responds at all. Because what we see now, we begin to see the fruits of the trials that God has put, put David through. And the refining process that God has prescribed for David, we now begin to see, just begin to bear fruit in his life. James said this, I, I referred to it a minute ago, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, Lacking nothing. Again, in Ephesians 4, Paul there, he's talking about the many ways that God equips us and teaches us and molds us into his image. And he says this in Ephesians 4.13 of that process. He's doing all that till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, there it is again, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, what, what Paul says there in, in Ephesians 4.13 is that God desires that you and I should grow together in unity with him and with his people. He wants to see us in unity. His prayer, Jesus' prayer, before he went to the cross, in, in a high priestly prayer, he prayed, Father, I pray that they would be one even as you and I are one. And Paul says also there in verse 14, uh, 4.13, not only that... He, does God want to grow us in unity with him and with his people? But that the whole idea is that we should become increasingly more like Jesus. Let me ask you, does that describe your walk with God? Are you becoming increasingly more like Jesus Christ in the way that you're living your life? See, because what I want you to get here, and this is the picture of chapter 1. If you miss this, you've missed the whole idea of the chapter. David here in this chapter is a picture of Jesus Christ. And Saul here in this chapter is a picture of how God views you and he views me. See, because what happens so often is that the way that we live our Christian faith, we're in this place where psychologically we're thinking that, you know, if, if, if I don't mind all of my P's and Q's and if I'm just, you know, disobedient to God, that he's just standing up there with a baseball bat, just, right, just give me one reason, man, you know. And a lot of us live our faith like that. Like God's just waiting just to take my head off. Listen, that's not the heart of God. It's not the heart of God 
Even towards your worst enemy, that's not the heart of God. Turn, turn to uh, Luke chapter 19. Here in Luke chapter 19, as you're still making your way there, just give you the background. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and he's coming to give his life. Mark 10, 45 says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what's happening here is Jesus is coming to, to die on the cross for the sins of all mankind. He knows what's coming. And we pick it up in verse 41. It says, Now as he drew near to Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Saying, verse 42, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You've heard the the scripture that says, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And so often we say that. We wake up, we're like, this is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. And that's great and all. And we can have that attitude and, and, and that's a good attitude to have. But that the psalmist, when he said, this is the day the Lord has made, he was referring to this day. He was speaking specifically of the day that Jesus Christ would enter into Jerusalem as the sacrificial lamb for our sins. And so this is the day. That heaven and earth has been looking forward to when Jesus would come redeem his people. And Jesus, looking over Jerusalem, he weeps over it. You don't don't see it. This is, is, man, if you would have known that this was your day that made for your peace, but, but you're blinded to it. Verse 43, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you. And your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And that day would come on 70 AD when the Romans would invade and they would burn the city to the ground. The people would be expelled. And Jesus weeping. Now, listen. These are the people that are going to put nails in his hands and in his feet. That are going to beat him to a bloody pulp. And then are going to mock him until he dies. And basically say, die already. Put a, put a you know, crown of thorns on his head mocking him. Hail, king of the Jews. Jesus, knowing all of this... He weeps over him. See, I want you to hear that is the heart of God. It's the heart of God. And maybe here today, and you're here, and you haven't surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I would want you to know that God loves you. He loves you. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And when it says he gave his only begotten son, he gave his son to be slaughtered. By the very people he came to save. And he gave him so that none might perish. But that all would have everlasting life. God loves you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to repent. He wants you to to turn to him. But his heart is anguished and broken. For those like Saul who have a catastrophic failure. And whose lives are fallen. Is your life fallen today? God loves you. And you got to see that. See... Ezekiel the prophet, he said this. Let me put it on the screen for you. He said, this is God speaking through Ezekiel the prophet. He said, I will judge, this is God speaking, I will judge each of you, O people of Israel, according to your actions, says the sovereign Lord. Repent and turn from your sins. Don't let them destroy you. Put all your rebellion behind you and find yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Here it is, listen. For why should you die, O people of Israel? I don't want you to die says the sovereign Lord, turn back and live. People scoff. They're like, why would a loving God send people to hell? God doesn't send people to hell. God sent his son to keep you from hell. And if you go to hell, it's your own choice to deny the only salvation that is available for you, the sacrifice of the son of God. You have to literally crawl over Jesus' dead body 
to go to hell. God doesn't want you to go to hell. That's not his heart. He wants you to be saved. And what we have to understand is, you know, there's a worship song that we sing, which is, break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. And the thing is, is that we as, a, as children of God, that needs to be the cry of our heart. Lord, what anguishes you, let it anguish me. And this is what's going on with David with regard to Saul. God has done this refining work in David. And so David in this place, when the news comes to him that Saul has been killed and his sons have been killed, he doesn't spit on his grave and go, well, that's what he gets because he made my life a living hell. Thank you, God, for, for crushing him and taking him out. No, what he does is he, he, he mourns, he weeps, he fasts because his heart is broken for what breaks the heart of God. I just want you to maybe even write down the name of the person that you're ready just so willingly to see God crush and to destroy. Maybe even somebody that you've gloated over that's had some sort of failure or some sort of you know, catastrophe that has come upon them and you basically say, well, you know what? You reap what you sow, man. And, and there you go. You, got it. you had it coming. And that you, you might have that attitude. And then David said to the young man who told him, verse 13, back in 2 Samuel chapter 1, where are you from? And he answered, I'm the son of an alien, an Amalekite. And so David said to him, how was it that you were not afraid to put your hand, to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David called one of the young men and he said, go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. And so David said to him, your blood is on your own head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. You're like, whoa. What's all, well, what about the heart of God now, Ted? What, what, what now? What, what say you there? Well, here's what's going on. This guy, he, he claims to be a, 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 an Amalekite who's the son uh, of an alien. And the, the, what that means, it has a huge connotation. What it means is that in the law of Moses, if you had somebody who wasn't a Jew, but they wanted to live at, with the Jews and be at peace with the Jews, they would be an alien that would be a resident alien. And so the law would afford that there were certain provisions for them, that, that they, they, they would have certain privileges. And so what this guy is doing, he's phrasing it this way. He's probably lying through his teeth, but he's phrasing it this way because he's not unaware of that, and he wants to take advantage of all the provisions that are available to him. So he's like, you know, my, you know, I'm basically, I'm the son of a resident alien. Now, he was more likely a camp follower. And a camp follower was a certain group of people. And what they would do, they made their living scavenging after the Philistine army. So when the Philistine army would go in and cause, you know, destruction and mayhem and so on, then they would follow in behind and they would loot and pillage and, and take whatever they could after, you know, all the heavy lifting had been done you know, by the Philistine army. It's not unlike, you know, you watch Mad Max and there's certain characters there that are just sort of, you know, the, uh, the rats that sort of come in after this devastation has taken place and take advantage of a people who themselves have, have, have been, you know, taken advantage of. And so that's probably who this guy is. And when he found Saul, he saw an opportunity for a payday. He thought he'd score some points with David. Now, how, how do we know that that's the, really what's going on in his heart? When we get to chapter 4, David's going to tell us that that was going on in the guy's heart. That he, his whole motivation was, I'm looking to get something. You know, the, the, the tearing of the clothes and the dust on his head, that's all for show. He's, he could care less about Saul, could care less about Saul's sons. He's looking for a payday. Proverbs 24, 17 and 18 says this, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him. Again, Proverbs 17, 5 says, He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Why? Well, because the Bible says that it's Satan 
who has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's the heart of Satan. It's not the heart of God. And when we have that kind of a heart, we're just like Satan. So I ask you the question, man, in thinking about the person that's hurt, hurt you, do you have the heart of Satan or do you have the heart of the Savior? been said to rejoice in the fall of a brother is to forget God's grace towards us and his love for others. It comes to my mind as the parable that Jesus told of the unmerciful servant in, uh, in Matthew chapter 18. You guys have heard the story, I'm sure. Right, this guy, you know, he owes the king, a, a, you know, a, a debt that he couldn't repay in like 10 lifetimes. And so the king has him thrown in prison and he's, he's like, you know, you're not getting out until you until you repay me everything you owe. And the guy throws himself the mercy of the king. He's like, forgive me, please. You know, just let me go and I'll pay you back everything I owe. Now the king knows he could never repay him. I mean, you, you could live to be 412. You're never going to be able to repay me. But what does the king do? In his, in his mercy and grace upon this guy, he, he, he sets him free. He forgives his debt. And the guy promptly goes out, having been forgiven by the king for so much, and as he's going out, he sees this guy who owes him the equivalent of a couple hundred bucks, and he's like, hey, you owe me, man, pay me back. And the guy pulls the same line on him. He's like, please, please, let me, let me, give me time to repay. And he could have repaid, and the guy's like, nope. I'm going to send you to prison. You are not getting out until you pay me the last penny. And the king's servants see what just went down. They go run to the king. They're like, you'll never believe what this dirtbag did. It's the way it reads in the Greek. It's, you know, that's what they say. <laughs> this dirtbag who you were so gracious to, so merciful to, he, he just wouldn't forgive this guy. Had him thrown in prison. And the king calls him back in. He's like, seriously, that's how it's going to be? Well, how about this? How about I throw you in prison now? And the whole idea there of Jesus' parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, is to say that, listen, you and me, we're going to have people that owe us. They owe us an apology. They owe us something, man. And we so often are like this unmerciful servant where we completely forget who we are. How much God has forgiven you for? We just, we just lose it. And, and, and this, is, this is the idea here. Here's what's going on. David has now gone through the ringer and David is now in a place where he can say, you know what? Saul was pretty bad to me. And you know, there was a season in my life where I became just like him. I became just like him. I, I too was disobeying the Lord. I too was looking to my own interests and take matters into my own hands. To the point to where I was going to go fight against God's army. And so David realizes, there but by the grace of God go I. I need to be forgiving. Now, David executing this guy, it's righteous. It's a righteous execution for a couple of reasons. First of all, because this man killed the king. Regardless of whether he's lying or not, he, if he's lying, he's just said that he did. And so, okay, well, you just testified against yourself. Or he actually, in fact, did take Saul's life. And you can make a good argument for both cases. But either way, he's killed the king. Punishment's death. You can't do that. Second reason why this is a righteous judgment on David's part is because God had already commanded that the Amalekites be utterly destroyed. He commanded it in Exodus 17. He commanded it again in Deuteronomy 25. He commanded it to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15. See, in Scripture, there's interesting typology. Uh, Egypt is, is a type of our old life that was in bondage to sin in the world. Red, the Red Sea, it's a type of baptism as the Israelites pass through the Red Sea. You know, it's, it's the symbol, this type of coming out of the old life into a new relationship with God. The, the wilderness, it's a typology of, of hey, listen, I, I've, I've been redeemed, but even though I'm redeemed, I still struggle with the flesh. So one of the guys asked the question at the men's retreat, he's like, look, I love God, 
but why do I still struggle with this sin? Like, because you got the old nature and the new nature. You are a new creation in Christ. <clears throat> but like the Apostle Paul, you're going to struggle with your sin nature. That that I want to do, I don't do. That that I don't want to do, that's what I do. Who's going to save me from this body of death? Jesus. And so the, the, the wilderness is that type of the struggle that you're going to have as a Christian. Entering into the promised land. This is, this is a type, a typology of the promises that await us when we obediently walk with God. And so scripture is filled with all of this typology. And so we have the Amalekites that is, serves another typology. The Amalekites, they're a typology of our sinful flesh. That we're called to utterly destroy. Paul said this to the Romans. He said, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so Saul disobeyed God. He refused to put the Amalekites to death and it cost him his life. See, God knows what he's talking about when he tells you to put sin to death in your life. And I would just have you take a walk with this week. What's God asking you to put to death in your life? What are the Amalekites in your life that you got to deal with? See, Saul, he, he wouldn't do it. Why? Well, because he and the, he and the people were like, well, well, we'll destroy what's worthless, but all the good stuff we want to keep. And that's the way we are with our sin. We're like, you know what, I, I'll, I'll get rid of it. I'll destroy, you know, okay, God tells me I'm not supposed to do that. All right, I'll get rid of that because I'm not really interested in that anyway. But there's this other thing over here, this little pet sin that I want to go, you know what, that, that's good. Why, why, would, why would God call, call me to, to, to get rid of this little thing? Well, because it's going to show up later in your life and kill you. You know? That little pet sin grows up. So God knows what he's talking about. And David, here he executes judgment righteously. Verse 17. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. Now, the book of Jasher is not part of, of our Bible, the canon of Scripture. Uh, but it's referred to a couple of times in the Bible. And that doesn't mean that it's a lost book of the Bible. It just means this was a book that was read, that was account, you know, the, an account that was made, <clears throat> that was in circulation, that people were aware of. Now, a portion of this, of this book is recorded for us in Scripture, and so this is anointed of God. And we have it here. And here's what he says. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. And he says this several times in here, and it's both a question and a statement. How the mighty have fallen. Let's take a walk with that, man. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelton. These are the places where the Philistines are, are, are congregating their main cities. Let the daughters of the Philistines, or, uh, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. This is tragic news. This is tragic news. We don't want our enemies celebrating over this thing. O mountains of Gilboa, this is where Saul and his sons died, let there be no dew, nor rain upon you, nor field of offerings, <clears throat> for the shield of the mighty is cast away there. The shield of Saul. Not anointed with oil. The idea there is the, the warriors, when they went into battle, they would have their shields and they would be heavily uh, layered with, with uh, leather and they would oil them so that they would better repel and be you know, spongy to repel the, the archer's bows and so on. <clears throat> you would oil them up before battle and he's saying you know, that's, that's done with. Verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not turn away empty, did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. 
how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of a woman. And there are those that want to pervert this and say this is a homosexual kind of love that he's talking about. They have no concept of the fact that you can have a deep, intense uh, love, a godly love for someone that doesn't involve sex. And it has nothing to do with that. That's a perversion of the heart of this. Men who have been in battle, our own Marines understand the love and the camaraderie that, 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 uh, uh, that you have with your fellow Marines, soldiers with their fellow soldiers. They get it. They understand we've been to hell and back together. We're connected. You have men to this day. You watch a do- I just watched a documentary the other day, World War II, and here you got this old soldier. He's 90-something years old. He's recounting the death of his friends. He's weeping as if it happened just that day. Just the, 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 the connection. This is what, what David is, is saying here and conveying. Verse 27, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Listen, here's what I want to close on and here's just what I want you to take away with. What David's doing here, he's saying, we're going to remember these men for the things that they did that were noble and noteworthy. We're not going to choose to remember those things that they did that that were not noble, that was not noteworthy, those things that they did that grieved the heart of God. The Bible talks about God saying to his people, listen, your sins I will remember no more. The Bible teaches that, that we in Christ, in, in the forgiveness of God and having received it, that he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. God, when he looks at you, he looks at you with a pure love, with a pure heart. He's anguished over the sin that we have. And David, in the writing and the retelling of this this song that he wants published throughout Israel, he's saying, with the heart of Jesus Christ, he's saying, we're going to remember these men as they were when they were honoring God. This is what we're going to do. In the book of 1 Corinthians, it talks about how love believes all things and it hopes all things and it endures all things. The love never fails. The takeaway for us, the big, the big E on the eye chart for us today, the takeaway is, do I have the heart of Jesus Christ? Do I have that heart for my enemies? Because God loves your enemies every bit as much as he loves you. And listen, if we would be a people that would have the heart of Jesus Christ, it will set us free. And some of you need to be set free today. Some of you have been bound in angerness and bitterness and resentment. Maybe even right now you resent me for bringing it up. I want to hate that guy. Just shut up and let me hate him. God loves him. He died for him. He's anguished over him. And our hearts should break for the things that break God's heart. And so maybe today, you, you, God wants to set you free. He wants you to get to the place to where you say, he's precious to you, God. I'm going to weep over his condition, over his state. And sometimes the people that m- most need a headbutt, what they most need is the love of God.